0: because you let people speak whether everybody thinks they should have a voice or not.
1: But it's a hard road to travel for a woman to be outspoken.
0: Larry Nasser, you sentenced him to up to 175 yes. years. Did you ever consider that he wouldn't go to jail? Boy, have I got an interesting guest today. This is Judge Rosemarie Aquilina. Let me just introduce her for a while and then I'll talk to her in a second. She is a judge in Michigan. She earned her law degree from the Thomas M. Cooley Law School in 1984. She got her bachelor's degree from Michigan State University in 79. So she's been doing this for a while. She served as a 55th district court judge for four years and then has been elected as a 30th circuit court judge in Ingham County in November of 08. And she retired honorably from the Michigan Army National Guard after 20 years of service. She was the first female JAG officer in the Michigan Army National Guard, also the most requested JAG officer of all time, not by accident. We'll talk about that in a minute. She served as administrative assistant to State Senator John F. Kelly for 10 years. And she actually hosted Ask the Family Lawyer, which was a syndicated show. She is a published author. She has fictional novels, Feel No Evil, Triple Cross Killer, and All Rise. We'll talk about those in a minute, too. She's got a memoir coming out real soon called Just watch me. That was not a title picked at random, uh, which we'll get into as well. She's currently an adjunct professor at the Thomas M. Cooley Law School and Michigan State University School of Law. So, needless to say, she is more than a little busy. So, Judge, thank you. You've been a really important part of the show. Dr. Phil, and I took this opportunity to glom on to you and get you to sit down and talk to us more about you and let people get to know you a little better because people love it when you're on, as you probably know.
1: well, I love being on, but more important, I love that you, love people and messaging and trying to fix the world. And so your show is just instrumental in change. And I am honored that you asked me to be on that and on this podcast. So thank you.
0: Well, you speak right up. And I love that. You say what you think. You're very thoughtful in what you do. And, you know, there's something in your courtroom that I really admire. And that is you let people speak. You let people say what they want to think. That bothers some people, I guess, because you let people speak whether everybody thinks they should have a voice or not. But you kind of let everybody talk, right?
1: Well, it's my belief that it's not my courtroom. A lot of judges believe it's their courtroom, their way, no matter what. I believe it's the people's court and the people have a right to voice in on whatever case affects them. And I give them all the time they need. And learning... What they have to say helps me be a better judge because it's that backstory that makes the story, that helps me make a decision. And I don't listen to the naysayers. And I have to say, I appreciate that you appreciate my voice because so many people don't want me to speak up. And when I do, put me down. And I keep speaking up because no one puts me in a corner. No one tells me to shut up and stay quiet. But it's a hard road to travel for a woman to be outspoken.
0: Yeah. And I know that's true, particularly in the legal profession. And I want to talk about that some. If people are wondering, do I know her? Probably most people know you from presiding over the Dr. Larry Nasser case. That's not the only thing you've done of note in your career. And I don't want to typecast you in that way. But if people are saying, where do I know her from? You presided over the Larry Nasser case. And if you're trying to place his name, he's the doctor, and I use that term loosely, who abused so many of the gymnasts. And I guess it's still on appeal. So you could say he's been found to have abused them. And although that's under appeal, but. The US Olympic gymnast and a whole lot of other gymnasts. You presided over that case. How long did it last?
1: I allowed them to speak for seven days. He pled. And then the sentencing took seven days because that many women came forward. We expected first about 20, and then it turned to 40, and ultimately 156 sister survivors, as I dubbed them, spoke. And 169 spoke all together. And I think the number now is about 505 people who've come forward.
0: Wow, that's just amazing. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if you're trying to place uh, the judge other than on – Our show, that's probably where you would know her from the most. And I thought, you know, I spent most of my professional career in the litigation arena, as you know. I've been in front of more judges than you can shake a stick at. And I thought you did a masterful job in that case. I'm not saying that because you're sitting here. I thought it was even-handed. I thought you let him speak. I thought you let people speak to him at the time. And I said so publicly at the time, and this was before I had the pleasure of meeting you. I said publicly, I thought you did a masterful job in navigating the terrain of that case. And I thought you gave everybody their day in court, their opportunity to speak. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But your parents immigrated to the U.S., right? To Detroit?
1: Yeah, my grandparents immigrated from Malta with their five children. My father was the oldest. And then they became citizens. My father then joined the U.S. Army and served in the Korean War and then went to Germany to medical school on the GI Bill met my mother, who was German. They would lost everything through Hitler everything from my grandparents and were very very poor and my mother ended up um, being a governess in spain and they met on a train uh, in germany really exchanged phone numbers and a year later were married i was conceived 11 months and two days later my brother was conceived and of course my dad could not study with two crying babies so my brother and i emigrated with my mother to live with my grandparents in detroit and we came over stateless because At that time, Germany only recognized the citizenship of the father, and the United States did not allow my father to transfer his citizenship because he had not yet been a citizen for 10 years. Now, all of that's changed, but my brother and I are naturalized, and we came over with stateless stamped across our baby pictures.
0: Wow. But your father did naturalize eventually.
1: He did. He was a citizen when he served, but he could not passed his uh, citizenship on for 10 years at that time.
0: Yeah. So, he served in the Korean War, and he went to medical school in Germany, right?
1: Yes. And then when he specialized, he came back to the United States and did his specialty there. He is a urologist.
0: Yeah. And you thought your grandparents were your mom and dad, right? They raised you.
1: So, people don't really think about children as having a voice, I think. And when... My mother would work downtown Detroit, send the money back to my father. We lived with my grandparents. When my mother came home after working, I thought she was more like my sister rescuing me from my parents. You know, who My grandmother had been yelling at me, don't do this, don't do that, You know, whatever, as little kids. And I would get up every morning with my grandfather, who worked at Ford at mm-hmm. 5, 6 o'clock, and have some coffee and toast with him. And my uncle, who was in the youngest child of theirs, was in high school calling them mom and dad. So I called them Nunnu and Nunna, which means grandmother and grandfather in Maltese, but I equated it with mom and dad because they did everything for me. Yeah. So five years later, and I only saw my dad once a year, five years later, my dad comes back and they put us in a car and they take us away and I felt kidnapped because no one told me. Now still to this day, My family will tell me that I'm stupid that I didn't know. And how could I think that my grandparents were my parents? But, you know, you have to talk to little kids because it's the connotation of what they do for you every day that makes the -hmm. word.
0: Yeah. But, you know, when you're five years old, you know what's in front of you. You live moment to moment and you know what you experience, right? That's that anonymous poem, children learn what they live. It's just what you experience. That's what you know.
1: Right. Yeah, they were my parents. So I, I now look at it that I was blessed to have two sets of parents. But let me just tell you that feeling that you've been kidnapped since you were five makes you fight for everything.
0: Yeah. And you said that's why you've always been interested in the backstory of the people that come before you. You want to know their frame of reference, what they grew up with, how they got to be who they are.
1: Right. Not everybody has a mommy and daddy like you know you or I. Not everybody um, can go to school. Not everybody understands the world around them. Or if they do, it's from a, a cultural perspective or a street perspective. Or they were abused, and that changed their perspective. So it's that backstory that really enlightens me on how best to sentence them, rehabilitate them, and make sure that at the end of their journey with me, they are whole, if they can be, or maybe they need to be sent to prison. But it's the backstory that makes the story, and it's interesting that way.
0: Yeah. So you take that into account. You listen to see who they are, where they came from, as an explanation for maybe why they did what they did instead of just what they did.
1: Right, because oftentimes I find there's mental illness. They might be a drug addict, but why are they a drug addict? It might be because they were assaulted or abused in some way and they want to shove it down. It also might be that it's an untreated mental illness. So if I can get them the right medication, the right doctors, then guess what? They are rehabilitated and they don't use the cocaine or heroin or whatever they're using. We have to look at the backstory to find the solution. That we're dealing with today.
0: Well, now that takes a lot more time to listen and figure out who they are and to do a real pre-sentencing study and know who's in front of you. But when you do that, are you more confident in the sentences that you hand down?
1: Yes. And I also know it works because I live in the community where I work, And I have people come up to me, no matter where I am, and tell me, you saved my son's life, you saved my life. Uh, I didn't know I was going through that. How did you see it? And I know it works. And I see the recidivism rate, at least of many of the people in front of me, go down. And I don't care if I deal with one case for a week or 10 cases in a day. I'm not done with that case until I'm done with that case. The only thing that's in front of me is that one particular case. I believe that is what judges are supposed to do. I know that's not always popular. I know that I get complaints that I spend too much time uh, talking to people, and I don't care if you don't have time to be in my courtroom, reschedule or or leave. I'm not going to leave until I'm done, until I have that information. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, Essential
0: Television. Does it bother you to have to pass down a judgment and a sentence on people day after day after day? Because I know you send a lot of people to prison. You send a lot of people to jail. You revoke probation. Sometimes there are people that in the moment are highly remorseful. They stand before you and... Cry and plead and beg and all that. You still have to make that hard decision to say no. You, you did what you did, and you're going to have to pay for it.
1: When you listen to the backstory, when you listen to the victim, when you do your work, when you listen to defendant, and you have all the pieces and you really take the time, uh, my decisions don't bother me. And oftentimes the Department of Corrections will say this person must go to prison, and I will say no. They might have 37 charges, but most of these are drug-related. They've never been sent to rehab. How is that possible? We failed. So I try. And either they succeed or then they can go to prison. But we are dealing with human beings, and I try to make good decisions, and I sleep well at night because of that. It's important.
0: I've dealt with a situation today with women in prison and the fact that our penal system was never designed to accommodate women in prison and since 1990 the women in prison population has increased 700%. It's still a minority of the overall prison population but it's gone up 700% since 1990 and the abuse of women in prison is undeniable the sexual abuse the neglect the assault all of the dehumanizing things that happen to women in prison is well-documented and undeniable. How do you square up with sending women into a penal system that you know is broken and you know is not going to be a, a constructive destination for them?
1: First of all, I try not to send people to prison if I don't have to, if I can rehabilitate. But sometimes I have to send them. And what I usually do is in my orders, I take the time to send a message to the warden. Uh, this person needs mental health. This person needs um, grief counseling. And send them some messages of what I think they ought to have. Now, I don't run the prison. He doesn't have to listen to me. But when I get letters from prisoners saying I need this or they did this to me or didn't do that to me, I will call the warden and they're generally receptive. It is a huge problem. And the next problem on the horizon are transgender. What I'm finding is that if you have a transgender person, they have no place for them. So they'll put them in solitary confinement, which is cruel and unusual punishment. And I recently had one in the jail. They put a man who was transitioning into a woman uh, halfway there and looked and talked like a woman, but wasn't yet fully a woman, and they put her in isolation. And when this woman came out of lockup, the first thing I said is, we need to have a chat. What's wrong? What's going on with you? I didn't look at the paperwork. I looked at the human being in front of me, and this human being was bent over and very shy and withdrawn, and I thought, I need to get this person some help. And she explained to me that she's transitioning and they've kept her in isolation for four months. And I said, I am terribly sorry. I did not know. And I gave her a PR bond, released her that day. And she was so grateful. And I called the sheriff and said, don't you ever, if there's ever anybody like that who who you don't have a place for, You call me, we can put a GPS tether on at county expense, and I will give them a PR bond. You cannot do that. And Hymden Hodden said, well, our new jail will have a place, but we don't now. Well, that's inexcusable.
0: That's what I'm talking about. Some of these prisoners, just the fact of what they have or don't have, putting them into a system that can't accommodate them, results in negligence or outright abuse that is cruel and unusual. It's violation of their Eighth Amendment right. So if a judgment is rendered and a sentence is imposed, the deficiencies of the system equal cruel and unusual punishment just by putting them in the system.
1: Absolutely. One of the things legislators could do, and they're not doing, and taxpayers should rally in the streets, is they close the low-level mental health institutions. If you're putting someone who is in need of mental health in the prison system, it costs somewhere between thirty-eight thousand and maybe fifty-eight thousand, depending on how much treatment they need. What's going on? If they're in um, segregation, how much security and all of that? If we put them back into those institutions, if we open the, that up, put them in a low-level security, get them actually treated, we're going to spend maybe six to ten thousand. We save lives, we treat people, we don't put them in dangerous situations, and we don't house them in cruel and unusual punishment prisons. And why isn't the legislature dealing with that? Why, as the taxpayers, are we paying for these missteps to be inhumane against our Constitution in the most powerful nation in the world?
0: Yeah, and I want to be very clear. I think people that break the law should be held accountable for breaking the law. But there's a difference between accountability and abuse. There's a difference in making the punishment fit the crime and doing something that is so disproportionate to the crime. And with women, for example, we know what 50, 60% of the crimes are not violent. They're either property crimes or drug crimes. And if you put them in the system where they're abused, neglected, raped, you know, whatever the situation is, you know, put in solitary for extended periods of time. If they're pregnant and put in the system or get pregnant in the system and, you know, they're shackled while in labor, et cetera, et cetera. These are issues that are rampant in the system. And I think people are like, I don't think they're particularly concerned about it because they're not particularly aware of what's going on, and it's not something that is a natural compassion that people have because they're saying, you know, if you do the crime, you do the time, but what's the time? Right. And I don't think they're aware of how if their own daughter, for example, committed a crime, and they would say, well... You've got to be accountable. I don't think this is what they would think is accountability.
1: Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty tough on crime, but I'm also looking at the backstory. Let me just give you an example. College girl gets pregnant, shoplifts something because she wants an East, a pretty Easter dress for her child versus college girl who is going to Hawaii or Florida or Mexico for a spring break. And her mother buys her two bathing suits and she wants five. So she shoplifts the other three. To me, the backstory of each tells me a different scenario. The woman who cannot afford it and just feels horrible like she's a horrible mom because she can't provide the Easter dress, she really needs some help financially and just to get her situated. The girl who is stealing just to steal because she is a glutton for what she wants only and is a disregard of all of us. She needs some time. She needs retraining. She needs community service. There's a lot of things she needs. There's two different paths those people are on and two different sentences Mm -hmm. for the same crime.
0: I did a show recently on, it was really a lot about San Francisco. Walgreens has closed 23 stores in the Bay Area, in large part because they say they're not prosecuting shoplifting in that area, they've raised the limit to $950. Anything 950 or below is a misdemeanor, Prop 47 in California. If they do anything at all, they give them a citation, misdemeanor. Some research says that they subsequently dismiss 70% of those citations. So there's basically no consequence so a lot of these stores just said, you know, we're just getting cleaned out on a regular basis. And it's not 950 per day, it's 950 per incident. So they can go into Target and get $950, they can go into Walgreens and get 950 go in the next door, so they can do $10,000 a day if they're industrious enough. And I had one member of the audience say, I think it's the fault of the corporations. They're not paying people enough, so they're basically just going in and taking what's rightfully theirs, and I don't see the problem, which I was a little dumbfounded. I'm not at a loss for words often, but I was a little at a loss for words. And in California, they have no bail, so if you do get arrested, they just take you down and process you in and right back out. How do you feel about that?
1: I think there has to be some accountability. If you steal, then you should be behind bars until you can make bail. If you cannot make bail, what we do in Michigan, which I, I like, I know some states are like California, New York. Of course, New York just changed a little bit. But um, what we do is... Bond is to protect the public and to make sure you'll appear for court. And if you can't afford bond, we don't make it a debtor's prison, but we'll give you a PR bond with conditions and you have to check in every week. And if you don't check in, then you go back to jail. And I think it works really well and there is some accountability there. And if you commit another crime, I don't have to give you another bond. So if you went and took money from a Walgreens and then went to a a Target um, while you were on bond, then I don't have to give you bail at all. You can just sit there until your day comes up. And I think that is a good system because there's accountability and you can't do those repeat offenses. There's no revolving door because all that law in California and they have that in New York is a a revolving door for criminals to have their day and for law-abiding citizens to pay the price over and over again.
0: A lot of people are really upset with the no bail Legislation that has gone through. And we keep seeing stories, and I know they're anecdotal and probably a very low percentage of the cases, but we're seeing a lot of stories where judges have had offenders in front of them and put them back on the streets. And then somebody with three, four, or five DUIs are back on the street and have a head-on collision drunk with a family of four and kill them, and then the city, county, wherever it happens, becomes outraged. How is this happening? What's going on in the court system that we have repeat offenders of violent crimes or DUIs that are back on the streets to re-offend with violent crimes. What's wrong with the system that that's happening?
1: They're not looking at public safety. So when you have an arraignment and then you have a probable cause hearing or pretrial, whatever steps you take, taken, depending on the type of crime and the state you're in, there has to be a finding of public safety. If this person's out, can the public be safe? And if you have someone who is a .17 or a .23, or I've had people with a .43, should they be out? No, they're a functional alcoholic, and it's not safe for them to be out. If they are out, they need to be on a scram tether so we can see if there's alcohol, and we need to put them in treatment pending trial. We can't have them out there reoffending and reoffending. I have had a defendant who... Um, drove drunk killed someone was another judge uh, lower than me put them out on bond on bond killed someone else I put them on a three million dollar bond they weren't happy about that the case has been resolved now and everyone thought that was too high but how much is a life worth there has to be some safety and accountability and you have to look at each case separately you can't just say here's the charge goodbye we'll see you tomorrow with another one that's not public safety. Aren't we all in this for public safety? That's why I'm here. Safe for public today and for my children tomorrow.
0: You've made the comment enablers and bystanders should be prosecuted. I feel the same way about the court system. If somebody in a position to take a public threat off the street and instead they put them back on the street They seem as culpable to me as the person that stabs the individual, shoots the individual, goes home in a domestic violence situation and beats his wife to death or abuses his children, gets behind the wheel, kills somebody. How do these people stay on the bench?
1: Voters don't know enough about judges. Usually on the ballot, judges are the last. Some people don't vote for judges and they get name ID and then they say, Oh, I know that guy and I vote for him, or they're an incumbent, they must be good, I'll vote for him. The likelihood of you coming in contact with any elected official is going to be a judge. We all will come in front of a judge, whether it's a probate judge because someone's passed, or we need a guardianship, or you have a traffic ticket and small claims court or traffic court or what have you. So you should learn about your judges and judges should be held accountable so that when they choose to release someone, They are looking at and identifying on the record, so it could be evaluated to see if they're a co-conspirator or not. What are the lethality factors? What's the crime? Do they have a gun in their home? Are there children in their home? Uh, Can they be safe? Will they come uh, to court again? Will they commit another crime? We don't have a crystal ball, but there are lethality factors. Why aren't they being used?
0: Yeah, Larry Nasser. You sentenced him to up to 175 years. There was, in your opinion, tremendous threat if he didn't go to jail. Did you ever consider that he wouldn't go to jail?
1: I knew that he would go to prison. I didn't know until I sentenced him how much he would do. His plea agreement was 25 to 40 on the minimum. And... It's interesting because everyone said that I was so mean and so harsh, but interestingly enough, math doesn't lie, does it? So the federal judge sentenced him to 60 years. He, of course, appealed trying to get 20 years because and stacked them all at the same time, and he lost on that. I sentenced him 40 to 175, but I had seven charges. The Eaton County judge sentenced him 40 to 125 years. She had three charges. Divide three into 40, it's what, about 11 point something years? So divide seven into 40, and it's what, 5.3 years. I actually sentenced him the least. What he didn't like was that when I thought the lethality factors in my courtroom, you know, the sheer anguish was at such a high level, it was red, you know, I would lash out at him, and then it would calm it right down to Green, um, because his behavior was awful.
0: What was he doing that was so awful? The things that I saw were he was just being flippant.
1: Yes, flippant, uh, laughing with his lawyers and not paying attention. If you read the transcript or listen to it, the sister survivors many, many times said, you look at me. I am not a number. I am a name. You look at me. And he wasn't looking. and. For those people who think I was harsh, he was in the witness chair rather than at council table because I had met with three levels of police and said, I'm worried about his safety. I'm worried about a lot of safety issues. And in the military, I'm trained in terrorism. So I outlined my courtroom and said, here's how it's going to be. I need plainclothesmen. I need three levels of security. And if something happens, I need him rushed out the back door through the jury door. That's why I had him there. Not for a media circus, as he called it, but for safety. And um, people can say what they want. I don't regret anything. Um, He is dangerous. He still, even though I asked him several times, does he want to withdraw his plea? And he said no. He still calls it medical. That worries me. I hope he is getting... Treatment and rehabilitation in prison, but do I think he should be free? No. In the letter that he wrote me, he said it was not it was not criminal, it was medical. His treatments of these sister survivors. he still, although he said it was sexual when he pled. He still claims it was medical treatment um, when he wrote the letter to me and when he spoke to me. There's no acknowledgement that he actually abused anyone, and that's frightening to me.
0: So he was still trying to claim that you were criminalizing medical practice?
1: Yes, that he did nothing wrong, and it's all my Mm -hmm. fault. I wanted a media circus. Well, I don't need a media circus. I've had lots of media cases. I didn't bring everybody there. He did.
0: Was there a point in the proceedings where— He came present and got real and stopped the flippant, denial-avoidant behavior.
1: The only human, deeply painful reaction that I saw, and I think the world saw, was when Trinae Gonzer spoke to him. And she had known him since she was a very young child. And she had been to his wedding, and there were all sorts of family events. And she felt very close to him. And when she testified in tears, she basically said, my friend, what have you done? It was almost biblical. You could feel the pain in both of them.
0: He had been seeing her since she was seven. Yes. And her impact statement was very moving. It, clearly, there was a reaction on his part to it.
1: Yes, He cried.
0: It was like there was nowhere for him to run, nowhere for him to hide. She locked in on him like a laser beam. Yes. And that changed a lot of people. You know, We saw that with the University of Michigan people. Yes. John, for example. John Vaughn.
1: Yes. John Vaughn, um, when I met him, he said, I I had to meet you. It was when I watched the impact statements that I decided to come forward. And for a black man to come forward is so incredibly brave, and uh, he and Trina are like brother and sister now, and, um, you know, he credits what she said, how brave she was, and uh, I echo that.
0: Did you say to him, I just signed your death warrant? I did. And when did you say that?
1: During the sentencing on the last day uh, after I announced the 40 to 175 years Some people say that was really cruel. It's not something I've ever said to anyone. And why I said it to him, it really just came out, I think, from my gut, because I wanted the sister survivors who so painfully testified, raw, honestly, with dignity. I wanted them to know they were safe because none of them felt safe.
0: They felt like because he hadn't acknowledged it and clearly was going to appeal, that they felt like he's not yet going down for this.
1: Right. And he just, he never acknowledged it. And even when he said, I'm pleading, I'm doing this for all of you, he was really doing it for him. I mean, he got a heck of a plea deal and it was really all about him and all about him keeping and maintaining control. And all of those sister survivors, they know that he's never going to, even if he were free, He would never touch them again because they're wise now. But their fear is the next girl, Mm -hmm. the next patient. And it's hard to live with that.
0: You said to him, it was not treatment. It was not treatment what you did. It was not medical. You wanted that in the record.
1: Absolutely. I wanted the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court when they reviewed what I said and why I did the sentence that I did to understand Not only his bad behavior, but that it was clear in the record that it was sexual, predatory, and there was no understanding of it, and it had nothing to do with medical, because he kept asserting it was medical. Clearly was not.
0: Do you regret saying either one of those things?
1: I don't regret anything. I can tell you, I have had a lot of time to reflect. And if you ask me, What do I, if anything, regret? I think it's that I didn't send him to forensics for a psychological evaluation um, because I am convinced more than ever that he is so disconnected with reality that maybe that's what I should have done. I did ask the lawyers. They all declined and said, nope don't send him and they know their case better than me but if i had to do something again i would have sent him because that is the one thing that i don't know
0: if they had come back and said he has a narcissistic personality disorder even though it's not a dsm 5 categorization they would have clearly said he had a malignant narcissistic personality and that he had an antisocial personality and a narcissistic personality. Would that have changed anything that you did? I
1: don't think so because ultimately the bottom line would have been that he understood what he was doing and that he could assist his attorneys at trial and therefore he would be subject to be sentenced. Now, if they said something like, he needs treatment before he could go to trial. Or if they would have said he was not able to understand what he was doing, that would have been different. What you've just said, I don't think that would have changed my mind, but it may have lent itself to say maybe before we go to trial, he should be in some kind of treatment.
0: Well, My training was in clinical psychology, and then I did a year's postdoctoral fellowship in forensic psychology. And, you know, one of the standards I've often been asked when I was in practice, when you talk about insanity, which is not an affirmative defense in most states and and federal court, but it is a mitigating factor in, in sentencing, as you know. But the questions are always, you know, first off, does he know the difference between right and wrong? And I don't think there was any question that he had such breaks with reality that he didn't know the difference between right and wrong. Agreed. And then further, does he have the capacity to assist in his own defense? I certainly don't think there's any question whether he had the capacity to assist in his own defense. Agreed. He certainly did. And you know, I always boiled it down to making the distinction between the irresistible impulse and the impulse not resisted. And, you know, that's sometimes a thin line, like in a crime of passion. It can be an irresistible impulse where you're just overwhelmed by the emotion and circumstance and proximity to the situation where the impulse is just irresistible versus just making the choice to not resist an impulse. And I look at all three of those. Did he know the difference between right and wrong? Clearly, he did. Could he assist in his own defense? Clearly, he could. And was this an irresistible impulse? It certainly was not because it stretched across so many people, across so much time, and he had the opportunity to deliberate his choices and behaviors from situation to situation to situation. You cannot tell me that this was an irresistible impulse. 150, 60, 300, 500, 1,000 times that he was just zombied out and couldn't resist the impulse. Bullshit.
1: Right. I, I and, and, you know, I agree with that, and I appreciate you saying that. It's just when I go through, could I have done something different? I think that's the only sort of missed piece of it. Um, and I agree, it would have come back that he was sane and could help.
0: But- well, that you appointed me, and I had done the evaluation I don't know what I would have found because I didn't evaluate him, but I can tell you what would have been on my short list. Those would be the first three questions I would have addressed. And I can tell you from studying the situation, all three of those would have come back saying that there's no reason that you can explain away his conduct or behavior, certainly not to the degree that he should not be subject to penalty for his conduct or that he should be in some kind of diversion program, or I'm sorry. And he certainly wasn't psychotic. There was no indication of schizophrenia or some kind of delusional disorder. There was just, I'm just telling you, I can't say that with certainty because I can't diagnose someone without actually interacting with them and seeing them. But this doesn't seem to me to be even a close call.
1: And I agree with that, but... That's the only thing that I can think of that really wasn't done in that case. Yeah. I think he's where he needs to be, and I hope he's getting the help and getting better, but I don't think he should ever be free.
0: And I don't think he should ever have the opportunity to be in the trusted position of treating someone, and it's too bad. I mean, he obviously has specialized knowledge where, you know, if he drove up on a crash scene on a highway he could certainly render aid to somebody better than somebody that didn't have his training and i'm sure it would be appreciated in that circumstance but there's no way he should ever be in a room alone with a patient because he clearly showed no signs of remorse
1: he got the only signs of remorse that i saw were that no one believed him anymore and that he lost control
0: yeah He behaved just on the samples that I saw. He behaved like a gaslighting, malignant narcissist, just in the observations. Haven't met him, don't know him. Maybe that's his defense mechanism. Who knows? But behaviorally, it appeared to be that any remorse he had was that he got caught. Agreed. And held to account. I've seen a lot of jailhouse Christians. You know, Chris Watts, Family Annihilator. You know, all of a sudden he found God in prison. Yeah, that's pretty handy.
1: I always yeah. laugh because I hear that line a lot. And, you know, I, I'm certain that God lives in jail and prison because everyone finds him there. You must, know, if he ever comes
0: they? back, I'm sure <laughs> it's going to be in prison.
1: Yeah, why didn't they find him outside, you know?
0: And, you know, I think people do believe it at the time. I mean, it's like we used to call him foxhole Christians, you know, as you believe in God, I do tonight. <laughs> These shows yep. come yep. over my head. I'll believe anything tonight if you just get me out of here. But I it just seems to me that he's probably safer in prison than he is on the street with a lot of fathers out on the street knowing what he did to their daughters. I think he would be in harm's way if he was walking around on the street. Agreed. Next week on part two,
1: even in this day and age, I've had to fight through so many barriers because I'm a woman.
0: You were the first female JAG officer.
1: I was. And uh, my paperwork sat and sat. And I thought, well, it's because I'm naturalized. They had to do extra paperwork. And it was in part. And then I learned that my paperwork was completed and was sitting on a colonel's desk. So I guess I could have been a woman who says, oh, discrimination and all of that. But why? What I did was use my brains.